Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad. Yep. I remember sitting there wishing I could just scream out loud and beg for help. But I knew if I did that, I would never see Mark again. This is the thing about real life. You can't experience the great things without the bad things. I felt like it would probably do better off if we didn't exist. And, um, you know, came up with a plan on, on how to end it. We talk about seven-year-old child. Even if he's referring to actually an adult, so let's say we change that to an adult, we say the woman shudders because the man keeps her even passionately. The fact is that she shudders. You do a big apology to me and give me my kids back. I'm still shocked by the evil. I, 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 yes, even to this day, when I see a video of a former friend or family member, I'm like, this is pure evil at work. And welcome to another Come Get Some Extra Scientology edition. Uh, this week, bringing you a uh, another second-generation Scientologist, ex-Scientologist who grew up in Scientology uh, from the age of six, uh, Danny Ballou. Uh, I think you'll enjoy, um, well, you know, enjoy this subjective term, but I think you'll appreciate uh, uh, Danny's account of her experiences. Uh, this will be part one, uh, with part two coming in two weeks because I'll be spending the holiday uh, away from the podcast uh, before July next week, but uh, for that weekend. But uh, part one is today, and I hope you, uh, again, appreciate it. Now, something that happened recently was uh, a man by the name, uh, another second-generation ex-scientologist, by the name of Brendan Ty, was just on uh, the Today Show with Megan Kelly the other day. And you can go to the to the todayshow.com and click on the drop-down for more, choose Megan Kelly, and you can see his interview among the other interviews there on the page. Uh, a couple things to take away from that. There was a lot to take away with a lot of that show. Uh, one was, of course, as we already knew, and, and you know, I, I know I can trust uh, when Cassie says that the show was true. They were auditioning people to sort of speak uh, to uh, to be a girlfriend or a mate or uh, John Travolta. So people think, well, was was she a Scientologist? Was she not a Scientologist? I think that doesn't matter. Uh, I don't know the answer to that personally. I'll have to check into that. I have not researched it, but uh, it's not, we know it's not, if you research and look into it, you know it's not beyond Tom to find a mate that's compatible with him and possibly being recruited into Scientology. So those things uh, can always be factors. The other thing that I took from that was his message at the very end of the interview was probably like the most important thing he said in the whole thing was uh, his family comes out and says bad things about him, his mom, and if he uh, uh, if they reconnect, none of that matters. He gets it, uh, and uh, uh, everybody pretty much, for the most part, gets it for those who are thinking about leaving. Like, well, what about what I said? Uh, people are waiting for you. Uh, so here's the uh, part one with Danny. All right, on today's show, I've got somebody who 
uh, was a second generation Scientologist uh, from six years old. Uh, and she's talking to us now about her experiences in Scientology, about having her own kids in Scientology, and just a whole lot of things in between. Please welcome Danny Ballou. How you doing, Danny? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we've talked a bit before uh, hitting the record button, and uh, uh, I think you're an amazing person, and I think we're going to have a great conversation here. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too, yeah. Um, okay, so was your family not Scientologists until the age of six? How did this all get started for you? Um, well, my parents got divorced, and so my mother was a single mother um, back in Massachusetts, and uh, there was a mission in, in Worcester across the street from where she worked. She worked at the city hall as a secretary, and um, I guess she just found her way in there one day and um, was just head over heels for it. And pretty much within a few months, uh, she became staff. Okay. And now uh, portions of what we talked about kind of reminded me of uh, Christy Gordon's story. Her mom went into staff and then she was home alone a lot. She was a little bit younger. But that's pretty much your case, right? You were were you left at home, or were you left at some kind of you know daycare for Scientology kids? What was what was happening with you? Um, no, I was at home. Um, we, I, I was in school during the school year, and um, she would not come home till eleven or midnight. Um, so during the school year, I would have to get myself ready for school in the morning and myself to bed and, and things like that. Um, and then in the summers, I was just, you know, running the streets, skateboarding and playing and whatnot. Okay. Was there any uh, noticeable change in your household after that point? Were things different up until six and noticeably just drastically different after? Yes, definitely. Um, we had a pretty decent apartment when she was working as a secretary and um, once she joined staff, we were in that apartment for maybe six months, and then the apartments got gradually um, less desirable, I guess that's put it. Yeah. Um, and then there would be other staff members living with us, coming and going. Um, so, sorry, I'm being distracted by... I guess I should have asked you if it's some way to turn off my texting while we're talking. Anyway, um... <laughs> So, okay. um, so there would just be like a revolving door of other staff um, living with us, and wow. sometimes there could, there could be, you know, six adults in a one-bedroom apartment with us. Um, these strangers? Yeah, I mean, to me, okay. um, they were staff, so they were not, you know, there a lot. But from a, from being a parent now, and being from that perspective. Um, putting a child in that situation um, where other adults are in the household with your child when you're not there, um, not, not a very smart thing to be doing. Um, so, yeah, so it just became this sort of thing of, you know, we had, we had furniture, I had my own room, you know, with my own bed, and it just got gradually worse and worse to where we're, you know, sharing a mattress on the floor, um, mm-hmm. 
in a corner of this place. And I don't, I can't say because I was a little kid at the time. I don't know for sure. But looking back at it, I suspect it's because she was just selling everything um, to make ends meet or whatever. To be able to pay dues and, and be able to to donate? Or just pay the bills because I'm sure she wasn't making much money, you know, probably something oh. like you know, 10 or Does $20 dollars to... a week. Or... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I just said probably like 10 or $20 a week back then in the 70s if she they were quit? lucky. She quit the... Uh... The, the city hall job for staff? Correct. Ooh, okay. Weird. All right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The things people will do for their beliefs. Um, yeah. The, now, Indeed. people, were you fortunate enough? I, I hate to ask these questions sometimes, but um, I got to. Um, were you fortunate enough that nothing happened with all these strangers passing through? Um. Yeah, for the most part. I, nothing actually happened with um, any of her roommates or our roommates. Um, I did have a couple of incidents of um, child predators noticing that I was on my own a lot of the time. So I had a couple of close calls. And um, thankfully, my street smarts were developed enough at that point that, you know, I, even at that age, I was like, no, I should not get in this car with this person, you know, kind of a thing. Um, but that was all on me. Like, that wasn't something that I even at that time would have thought to myself. Like, this shouldn't be happening. I'm in danger because my mother's not around. Um, I just sort of patted myself on the back like, ooh, you kind of, I think you had a close call there, you know? Right, dodged a bullet. Yeah, exactly. So at what point does she start trying to get you interested in it? When does she start doing uh, services with you or trying to get you to do studies? At that time. Um, it started with me immediately. I, I spent, I did spend time at the mission. Um, I wasn't supposed to be hanging around all the time. Um, just, you know, being there, you can't just bring your kids to work. Right. But I would be put on to um, the communications course I would be um, audited by people that were training to be auditors, so I could be, you know, an available guinea pig for that. Um, like six? Sure. Okay. Yeah, six or seven. Yeah. Um, so yeah, right away I had experience with um, doing CRs, being in session. Um, I spent a lot of time helping you know, uh, fold mailing, you know, get mailing done or out on the sidewalk with someone that was trying to, um, what they call body routing, trying to get people to come in. So I would um, try to help the grown-ups do that, like be cute, <laughs> I guess. Okay, so they, <laughs> see, get people... they see someone with a cute kid and say, hey, what are you doing? Oh, we're part of this yeah. awesome organization, come take our personality test, that whole thing. Always personality test, yes. All right, so, so you were roping them in that way. Wow, okay. They were using you. Uh, so did you think that was kind of... Sh- no, well, looking back now, um, do you think that's kind of strange knowing what you know about the auditing process that a six-year-old is being used as a guinea pig? I mean, because I w- if I was going to have someone audit it, and if I believed in auditing, I would want probably some of the best trained people with my kid. 
<laughs> yeah, I could see that point of view. And and I definitely use the term guinea pig loosely. I mean, that's just kind of a lame, like I'm trying to do like a non-Scientology term for what it was, which is, you know, having somebody, needing someone to practice on. Um, What's the Scientology term? Uh, that that they would need a PC. Like a I need PC. I need to, to do clear. like they're yeah, pretty clear. So they're need they're maybe they're doing a course on how to become an auditor. Um and there's a practical there's a a part of the course that says now you need to go, you know, try this thing on the e meter with someone. And if I were available then I would be that someone. Um well, you were just a kid. Uh, how, how did you feel about it about then, though? Did you think it was weird? Do you think it was just what the adults were telling you to do, so you did it? Or uh, my mother, my mother was very heavily involved in in selling it, you know. Um, and I very much, as any kid wants to, or most kids, want to please their parents. Um, and my doing those things made her proud. So um, I could see that, you know, that feedback from her that I was making her proud and um, and at that time you know she just envisioned like how lucky is her child to be getting in on this as a child yeah. when I've spent you know at that point I guess she's in, in her mid-20s um, I think from her point of view it was probably I felt lost I, I didn't have direction or purpose and how amazing it's going to be for my daughter that she doesn't have to go through any of that because I've already handed this to her as a child. Yeah, and I'm sure thing. that's what I'm, I'm sure that was her point of view. That's the thing with the second generation is is it's such a the the indoctrination is so different to me in the way it seems like it's just built in like there's no real effort needed on Scientology's part, it's it's just, it's how you're raised. So there's no, there's no convincing anything of anyone. You just, you learn that way. Yeah, I think that's true of any religion, but yeah. um, I'm not saying Scientology's religion, but anybody um, who has a set of beliefs or even a worldview, like they're going to try to import, impart that to their kids. Um, I think the difference with Scientology is that parents are also given this set of beliefs that give them license to not be parents anymore. Right. You know, you you tell me um, at some point you got taken out of school. At what point does your involvement in Scientology services require you to not have conventional schooling? I don't think there was anyone that was telling my mother that I shouldn't be in school. I think that um, we're talking about someone who was a hippie in the 60s and was sort of, I, you know, I'm just like, this is just my theory. Um, and knowing her in particular, that I really do feel like she, the 60s were kind of over and she was looking for something else that was, um, alternative, something that was outside of just the normal day-to-day, working nine-to-five, paying bills, um, and 
So with that background, she already had this predisposition to not wanting her child to be part of the system and public education um, not being very good. I guess I, I would correct myself. There's, there is some influence from Scientology that public education is bad um, and that there's a chance that psych- psychologists will get their hands on your kid if they're in public school. So there was that influence. Um, so she just didn't con- yeah, she just didn't consider it important um, because it would be more important for me to become an auditor, for example, than to go to public school. Right. Okay. So uh, what, what happens next? What's the next, uh, in your mind, because this is your story, what was the most notable, the most next notable event in your time in Scientology that, that you think maybe needs to be discussed? What happened next? Um, well, here and there, and during those couple of years, I did spend time with other relatives, which now, as I look back, was very valuable to my turning out somewhat normal. <laughs> These are non-Scientologist so, relatives? Correct, okay. yeah. So she would you know, maybe need to go to FLAG down in Florida for some training for a few months, and then I would be sent to live with a grandparent or something like that. So um, looking back, like that was, I was very fortunate to have that time. Um, and so that was happening, and I'd kind of go back and forth with my father as well because my parents were divorced, so I would go see him. Um, and the next thing that happened was she joined the SEA organization for, um, at the time it was called FOLO East U.S., which is, um, I'm going to try to remember what that stands for, Flag Operations Liaison Office, East U.S., so out of New York City. (laughs) And and, um, it was sort of a middle-of-the-night thing where I remember being woken up and um, some things were packed and some other people were in a van and we drove from Massachusetts to New York City and then we were there. And... um, she did have me try to go to school for a little while in New York City, but maybe a month or two, and then I stopped going. And um, that was a, a big change because now we're living we're living in the building where the offices are, and we're with these people. Like we're eating communally. Um, you know, I'm definitely not to bother her while she's on post. And I was one of a handful of kids that are just sort of running around this building, completely bored out of our minds, um, trying to find things to do and stay out, you know, stay out of the way, I guess. Um, there was a nursery with much younger kids and babies that I would work at sometimes, taking care of the younger kids. And um, I would take off sometimes. You know, I'd walk over to Central Park and... Um, walk around out in the city, yeah, which is probably not something, by then I was probably eight, eight or nine. Just wandering um, the city? Yeah. Wow. Which, because I had that kind of freedom in Massachusetts, I, at the time I didn't think there was anything especially more dangerous about it in New York City. <laughs> okay. um, but now that, you know, like I said, as a parent looking back, I'm, I'm horrified. Um 
and I can't tell you for sure if I was even supposed to be doing that. I, it's possible I just decided I was sick of being in the building and decided to just walk out and go for a walk. I can see that. So you did mention you worked in the nursery and helped out a little bit. Um, I'm not sure if all nurseries at all locations are equal. I know uh, Leah Remini in her book talks about visiting her uh, her, her uh, was it her sister or someone in the nursery, and it was just a terrible mess. What was the conditions in the nursery that you worked in? Um, well, definitely not a good adult to child ratio. Okay. Um, and it was a very tiny room. Um, I would say at any given time, we're talking about maybe 10 kids from ranging in age from newborn to age six in a 10 by 12 space all day. Um, and there would usually be one adult there, so that's one of the reasons I would be you know, asked if I could go help. Um, so I would go... I would go there and just immediately be doing things like changing diapers and heating up bottles and trying to keep a, you know, a, distract a crying child and you know, get them happier or whatever. Um, but I can't remember there really being much there for, you know, to entertain that many kids like in the way of books or toys or anything like that. Um, so yeah. It wasn't a good. It wasn't a good scene. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't a lot of good care. Just throw them in there and wait for the parents to come get them, basically. Yeah. Yeesh. Okay. Which was yeah before the time that they started, you know, they being the steward started realizing that they were going to have to do something about steward members having babies because at that time there were some people that were just having one every year. Right. Did you did you know anyone? Did you experience anything where anyone had to have an abortion to stay in the Sea Org? Um, I personally didn't experience that, but um, I did know I was very close to someone um, whose wife was pressured to have an abortion, um, and it was one of the many tiny, you know, not tiny little things because it wasn't a tiny thing for him, but it was one of many things that added up to me leaving. Um, because he was a very good friend and he was in so much pain. Um, he was, they were separated and I would say there was about a week of every day when I saw him, you know, cause they were, he didn't know what was going on. He had no idea what was happening. Um, he took a big chance in expressing to me that he wanted her to keep the baby and he wanted to go ahead and, and leave and have the baby. And at that time, which was 1995, um, the rule was that you could have a child, but you had to leave the Sea Org, and you had to um, be assigned to a local organization, a Class 4 org, um, and work there until the child was six. And then you could come back, and the child could then become a cadet at the age, you know, from the age of six. So he was seeing it as, you know, I want to go and have this baby and uh, we'll come back when that child turns age six because that's the rule. That's the that's what we're supposed to be able to do. Um, so 
that was my first experience to any of that. Like I did not even know until that happened that um, people were being pressured to have an abortion. Um, and I just kind of went through it with him every day. I was like, any, you know, did you hear anything? Have you seen her? And he was just getting more and more desperate. He's like, no, I have no idea what's going on. It's, you know, it's been four days, it's been five days. And then eventually after a week, I asked him and um, because I saw his face, like he was just, he looked like he'd been crying. And he's like, she's back um, and she's already had the abortion. And so they, you know, this, which I've now read was kind of the system that they had in place was to immediately separate the couple um, and put all this pressure on her and to not have him be part of the conversation at all. It just right. was so dis- so disgusting. Um, and they didn't last. They, they, they ended up getting divorced um, less than a year later. So it was very sad. It feels like that's something that they've done, and I've heard other people talk about having done, and they say that the pressure isn't a thing anymore, but it's kind of built in, isn't it? It's like, do I want to give up the, the high esteem of the Sea Org, or do we go ahead and have the abortion? That, that option's still there, and it's got to be pressure. Your choices that you make are always weighed against the higher purpose of clearing the planet. So any any leaning you might have towards personal happiness and comfort, family, your spouse, love, all those sorts of things are supposed to be weighed against that greater goal. And if you don't choose that greater goal, there's, there's, probably, there's something wrong with you is how you're made to feel, basically. I would think those people, the ones who chose to route out of Sea Org and become parents have to be probably in my mind some of the easiest people will reach next. You know what I mean? Because they've already made a choice different than what a lot of people made in the past when it came to children. Does that make sense? Hello? Yep. Do you think I'm oh, off line on that? Yeah, I lost you there for a second. Oh, sorry. Do you think I'm out of line with um, that line of thought? Or? No, not at all. Um, in fact, I went on a recruiting mission to the San Diego org and met one of those people who had been assigned to the San Diego org because they had a baby. And I think their baby was about age two at that time. Um, and he was hardly ever there because how in the world is he going to support a family of three? Um, with on org on org pay, <laughs> right? Um, so, but I was very curious, having already been through that experience with my friend, and I I tried to talk to him about it, and I was like, well, how are things going for you? And you know, you're a third of the way there. I bet you're excited to go back in just a few years, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I was not reading any kind of excitement on his part to go back. <laughs> um, so. I'd like to think that there's someone who did not go back. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, what age did you sign on officially? I think you do staff first. Um, you mean as far as signing a CR contract? Yeah, or or a staff contract, um, whichever one you sign first. If you sign the staff, I'm not sure. Um, 
Yeah, well, so not not when I was in New York City. Um, when I was in New York City with my mother, uh, my father actually showed up out of the blue and took me away. Um, and I later found out that he had custody. So when she moved That's us right. in the middle of the night from Massachusetts to New York City, um, it was technically a kidnapping. She actually did not have custody and should should not have taken me um, to New York City and did not tell him where we were. So she basically was trying to disappear inside this organization with me and probably had no intention of ever letting me see him again. Right. But he, he later told me, I found all of this out when I was 35 years old um, and had a, a big long talk with my dad. Um, so he had actually hired a, a private investigator who tracked us to New York City and that's how he found us um, and had to basically threatened to call the police if someone didn't produce my mother and I immediately. And from my point of view, it was like, Dad, you know, I haven't seen you in so long. What happened? You know, <laughs> oh, that's oh, right. Yeah. We didn't have a phone. Of course you weren't able to call. Where are we going? Get me out of here. <laughs> Were you in any way persuaded to believe he just didn't want to be in your life? Was that something that was done or just complete absence that you had no idea I, why? I think my mother was very wise to the fact that, because um, at this point, I'm four years past the divorce time, um, and I did not tolerate any bad talking of my father from her. So I think she was wise to not go down that road with me, and she probably just made excuses like, oh, he's very busy, and we don't have a phone, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, why don't you write him a letter? And maybe it's possible I even wrote him letters that she never sent. I have no right. idea. Um but I was just overjoyed to be rescued, basically, at that point, because I was so bored out of my mind. Um, and uh, so he picked me up, and we, um, and we moved to Northern California. And in the intervening time, over the next year and a half, my mother ended up at the Sea Org in Los Angeles. So um, I would say about two years after the New York City, time of my life, um, I was sent down to stay with her for the summer, and um, that's when I was 12, and then I ended up signing my first year contract at that time. So that would have been 80, 1981. You signed the Sea Org contract at 12? Correct. And don't they say they don't do it under 16 or something? I believe that's the current rule. That's what I've heard. Okay. Um, but when, um, so just for an example, in the mid nineties, when I was there and my children were around the age of 12, um, when you've gone through your, you know, they have categories for the children. So being a child is like the lowest tier to be considered a child. And if you don't want to be a child anymore, and you want to become a cadet, you have to go through certain courses and demonstrate responsibility and so forth. As soon as you um, are becoming a cadet, you sign a contract. Wow. So you could have a 10-year-old signing a contract, at least at that time, um, and then they would start going through all their cadet training to become a full-fledged field member. It's like everyone else says, right? They, they treat you like if you're 10, they treat you like you're 30. It's no difference. Yeah, in some ways, for sure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
so you met somebody uh, 13 years old, was it? Oh, yes, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> if you don't want to, we don't have yeah. to. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, yes, I did. I um, So I was there and being like an adult because I had signed my contract and I was being a full-fledged steward member and going to my post every day. And um, this man that I spent a lot of time with because we were in the same department um, started a flirtation and it became physical. He was 10 years older than I am. Um, or I should say he is 10 years older than I am. And um, so we had a, a physical relationship when I was 12 going on 13 and he was 10 years older that we were hiding from everyone, of course. Um, and even then, in my mind, it wasn't because I thought there was something wrong with our relationship. It's just because you're not supposed to do that without being married. Right. Was that something commonly you saw? Did you know a lot of people? Did you have friends that were 13 dating people in their 20s and 30s? Um, no, but I mean, I knew of certain situations that had happened that um, I knew I knew of them in the way that why aren't those people here anymore? And then I would be told the story of oh, there was an out 2D, meaning. Um, I don't know how do I describe out to <laughs> um, it you know something that's not okay on right. on the on the sexual the sexual dynamic, um, but again those stories were not told in the way of oh my gosh you know he was so much older than she was or she was underage it was in the context of that shouldn't have happened when they weren't married because the rule in the Sea Org is there's no heavy petting or sex unless you're married. Do they care? Because, okay, so I understand to an extent conventional law doesn't count so much within Scientology or something. So were they concerned at all with the age difference? I'm sure they were concerned with the non-married thing. Um, in, in your estimation, was there any talk about, hey, she's too young for him? No, um when we were discovered and separated, there wasn't any talk about the age difference. It was just about um, that we weren't married. And my mother, you know, because at that time I was probably expressing very strongly that, oh, you know, I love him and there's nothing wrong with this and you can't stop us, you can't separate us, whatever. Um, you know, typical dramatic thing a teenager might say or do. And her reaction was to try to figure out how we could get married, to fix it. Okay. So, yeah. So, a lot going on here. Um, this is um, clearly at the age of 13, you, you, you can't be consensual. Um, um, but Statutory rape was not something that was in my vocabulary at that time. Or I'm sure anyone's in that environment, I bet. My understanding is it was kind of a common thing, maybe not always 13, but very young with older um, and often underage. So yeah. do you think that I mean, fed that, a little bit? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, no, you go ahead and finish. Do you think that fed a little bit into cultivating 
the possibility for your relationship, or do you think it would have happened in any other environment? Um, it definitely cultivated it for me in my mind because I did know of people, you know, maybe a 16-year-old marrying a 30-year-old. Um, I knew at least three different couples where they were both 16 or they were both, you know, like 15 and 17 or something like that that got married somehow. I don't even know how that happens. I guess parents' <clears throat> laws may have been very different in 1981, but it was my understanding that if parents gave consent, you could get married. Um, so in my mind, number one, I already think of myself as an adult because actually there is no such thing as a child or an adult because I'm a billions of year old Satan who just happens to have a body that's not completely grown yet. Um, and then number two, um, I don't know where I was going with number two. <laughs> um, but, yeah, for, to answer your question, yes, like it, it, it influenced things for me. I, I don't, it's hard to describe, but it's not like people are going around saying, laws don't apply to us. Um, but there's always this, there's big justifications for why the law doesn't apply. Right. Um, right. Or why a wog, an outsider, somebody not one of us, would see that as being wrong and use it against us um, as bad PR. And so you have to be very careful and protective of that um, situation, that it does not get out into the public. It, it, because makes they wouldn't me, it makes me think of that extremely controversial, often debated amongst the ex and critic community, um, entry from Dianetics about the seven-year-old pulling away if a adult male tries to kiss her, if she pulls back it's because of an engram in her past. Um, do yeah, you think do that, you think that, that Go ahead, sorry. No, you're, I was saying that, you, yeah, there's that aspect as well. Um, the other aspect of it is the, the pulling in thing you probably heard. Yeah, where you know, yeah, yeah, that you. Um, so there's a phrase used called um, 2D flows, and so if a young woman um, is being flirtatious, or maybe um, has you know, too much makeup on, or is dressing provocatively, or whatever, um, that would be considered sending 2D flows out, and so if she were to attract negative attention or even be um, physically attacked or sexually attacked in some way, or even a young child being molested, there was an aspect of um, what did you do to make that happen? Right. You need to take responsibility. And um, in the context of you know what, hap- what we, were, we were just talking about that happened with me, none of that sort of thing was being discussed really, um, except that I was you know, supposed to take responsibility for creating a situation that could have been a bad PR situation. So you did get punished for having that relationship? Um, I did not get punished the way most people would. Um, So let's say two people over the age of 18 had sex and they weren't married. They would both be punished. They would be um, probably sent to the RPF or... Um, have to go through an ethics handling or something like that 
the solution for me at that time was that we were separated and I was um, banned from being on the base. So, and I was basically um, exiled to the, Holo- the Hollywood Inn, the HI, where my mother lived. Wow. So I had, I had been living on the base in my own dorm full of other adult women. And so I was removed from my post, obviously, because I was not allowed in the base. And I was to stay in my mother's room at the Hollywood Inn. And I was there for several months, um, just all day long. <laughs> do, you, do you believe that's so that you would be wrong and even within yourself feel wrong? So if any word is ever mentioned outside about this, you would do everything you could. <laughs> you do everything you could to protect that story because you would be embarrassed because because it's your fault. Do you think that's what that was about? Um, I don't know. I I have the sense that they were waiting to finish his ethics handling and um and his punishment. And then I would be brought in for mine. Okay. And um, that, at least from my mother's point of view, um, they were hoping the separation would cool the whole thing off. They were going to make him leave, and then I would be able to get my ethics handling and go back on post. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily a shaming thing, although it seems like a side effect. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, you know, there, there. Um, I completely lost the respect of my peers, and um, thirteen years old. I let everybody down. Yeah, but I, I let everybody down. I wasn't on post anymore. I wasn't doing my job to help clear the planet anymore, and I had done something that was distracting and destructive, and so that's what the ethics handling would have been about. Is you know why did you do this thing that's harmful to this organization when we are working to clear the planet? There's something wrong with you that you created this situation that's, that's harmful to us. That, that would have been the tone of that conversation. Wow. Nothing healthy or ethical about any of this. Any of it. Um, okay. So, so what happens next here for, uh, for you, Danny? Um, so for me, well, the, the Hollywood Inn had a payphone in the lobby at that time. I'm sure it doesn't now. Um, <laughs> um, and so we had a we had a system. Um, this man and I, we had a system where he would um, call me between a certain hour, usually the dinner hour, like maybe five to six, six to seven. I don't remember which one it was. And so I would wait in the lobby every day in case he was able to find a way to call. So we probably talked a handful of times over a couple of months, um, just all like, you know, I love you and I can't believe they're doing this to us and we're going to run away together and that kind of thing. Um, So finally one day when I got the call, he was like, well, I'm done. I finished my my sex checking, you know, his confessionals. And I'm leaving. Do you want to come with me? And I said, yeah, hell yeah, I want I, I mean, I'm just sitting here in a building all day, so of course I want to go with you. Um, and I did. We um, got on a Greyhound bus to Texas, and a couple of days after I arrived, uh, my mother called me at his parents' house, 
because um, when you go in to Sea Org, you have to write your life history and you have to write down um, the, the names, phone numbers, addresses of everyone in your family, everybody you know that you can possibly think of gets written down for them to have on file. <clears throat> wow. Which, so, and then when you're going in, you don't think really anything of it at the time. At least I didn't. Um, I just thought, you know, oh, okay, whatever. Um, but, of course, that's so they can find you. <laughs> All the people they can harass later if they have to. Correct. So my mother called me a couple of days after we arrived, and um, she, you know, she said, I'm glad I found you. I'm glad you're safe. And I was probably full of attitude and like, yeah, so what? You don't care. And uh, she's like, well, what would you do if I, you know, came out there to see you and, and bring you back? And I just said, yeah, I'll run away again. Don't bother. So she was like, okay, <laughs> you do your thing. You know, that was her attitude. It's like, you do your thing. I'll be here if you want to come back. And, um, and that's how that went. All right. All right, good. So... What happened next? What was the next significant event that stands out as something important we might need to talk about here? Ooh, well, I went back um, three more times. I joined the Sea Org three more times. I joined a total of four times. And every time you uh, have to sign a new <laughs> billing year contract? Yeah. Okay. It doesn't, they, don't, they don't stack. It wasn't necessarily that I owed them four billion years. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just sort of. No, a, now we're getting silly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a sort of a, you know yeah you sign it as a recommitment because um, right. when you do go back you have to go through the whole process again. Um, so um, the second time didn't last very long. My son was a baby, um, and the. Um, the place where they took care of babies and children at the time was called the CMO, next to Celebrity Center. And um, he wasn't doing well there. He was um, becoming, he, they call it failure to thrive. He wasn't oh uh, responding. Yeah, he wasn't responding. He wasn't, he was losing weight. And um, so I just refused to bring him back, basically. Failure to so thrive? Was, what's that? Failure to thrive? It's a condition called failure to thrive with infants. Um, So symptoms would be um, losing weight. Um, He wasn't making eye contact or responding. You know, like normally a baby, like you cuddle and they they hug you tighter Mm -hmm. or, you know, you tickle them and they giggle or whatever. Like there was, none of that was happening. He was just sort of staring off into space. Um, So I refused to bring him back. and then I was at an impasse where I can't be on post because I've got a, an infant and I would not bring him back. And that one was kind of strange because I didn't really go to ethics or get a handling or leave in the usual way. I just sort of faded out. I just stopped showing up kind of thing. Now, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't too long after that he began thriving, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I got it. He, he, he came back. Do you think it was it something took... to do with how he was taken care of or not taken care of? 
Absolutely. Um, I don't think necessarily that he was physically abused, per se, but there were just so many children to so few adults that um, the baby rooms, as they were called, the babies were just in their cribs so much of the day. Like, there wasn't a lot of human interaction for them one-on-one. Lack of nurturing. Absolutely. Um, there were several na- nannies, they were called nannies, there were several nannies there um, that would let babies just cry. And um, the closest thing I can come to describing it to someone for you to picture it is um, I've seen videos of orphanages in Romania where um, there's cow. just cribs like stacked on top of each, you know, like next to each other. And um, obviously these children weren't that bad loss uh, physically because some people think of, you know, the kids having physical issues like missing limbs or whatever. But it was very similar to that where there's just crib, crib, crib of kids in various stages of needing to be fed or changed or whatever. Uh, See, that's, so, that's closer to what I read in Leah's book. Yeah. It, it was pretty horrific. Wow. Okay. um, Anyway, yeah, so that was time number two, and um, I did not go back or really have any involvement until um, about ten years later. Now, in that that ten years, what what did you do? You did some uh, medical assistant training? Yeah, in that 10 years, I had uh, four children, and I went um, and got, I had not, so I I had not been back to school since the seventh grade, and um, and now I'm, a, I'm an actual legal adult, and I've got four young children um, as a single parent, so I went and got my GED and um, went to a technical college, so I got a two-year degree in medical assisting. And when I graduated from that was coincided with um, the war is over. We won the war against the IRS, you know, the golden age and all this stuff happened. Um, And during that time, I was in touch with my mother, you know, with phone calls and we were staying in touch. Um, So she just, um, the the best way I can describe it is she she started regging me. She started, like, working me over, like buttering me up, like you won't believe how different it is. Um, there's no more CMO. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm laughing. I've heard oh, this okay. before. <laughs> I've heard this from many yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, so she was basically saying there's no more CMO. C, uh, I said CMO, I'm sorry, CEO. Right. Children's Estates Organization. Um, there's no more CEO, and um, it's very, it's all different now. Um, there's a ranch for the kids with horses, and with your degree that you just got, you know, you can um, you could work there, and you'd see your kids every day, and you'd be helping all the other kids, and it just sounded to me like ideal. So at this point in my life, even though I haven't really been active because I haven't had any money, <laughs> right. um, I still considered myself a Scientologist. I still believed in, you know, the quote-unquote technology. Um, 
so for me, I was like, wow, this is going to be amazing. You know, my, now I get to introduce my children to this amazing thing and use my medical skills, you know, and help all these other kids. And it just sounded like the absolute perfect situation for me. I put the kids in the car and drove cross country to Los Angeles. So when you saw the whole thing with David Miscavige, that they won the war, they're now IRS um, tax um, exempt. What did you think when you saw that? I, I think even me not being directly impacted and knowing the behind the story, behind the scenes story a little bit, first time I saw it, it didn't even hit me. He's kind of admitting David Miscavige is saying to the crowd, cheering rabbit crowd, how wonderful it is that they manipulate it and harass and attack these people in the IRS until they broke down and gave in. I'm sure you didn't see it like that, right? I actually didn't see it. You never I've saw only it? Seen it. I've, I've only seen it actually in the last um, year okay. for the first time because I was in a rural um, part of New England and my only contact uh, was through my mother. Okay. So um, I did not see the video, um, but I heard a lot about the whole thing. Um, <laughs> and um, as a precursor to the war is over, when I was a kid during the FBI raids and things like that were happening, um, oh, yeah. I remember getting on a bus from uh, Worcester and going down to Washington, D.C. and marching around federal buildings with other Scientologists, um, holding signs because, you know, we were being persecuted. Um, wow. You had no idea so, what it was about. Yeah. So, I mean, when my mother told me about the event, for me at that time, it was like, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. Like, we've, we've been recognized. And um, so I consider that a huge win, you know, from my childhood of, you know, we're part of this tiny group of people that the federal government just picking on and doesn't understand. Wow. So there's people probably in Scientology today that still don't know what those FBI raids were about. Oh, no. Wow. Definite, definitely not. <laughs> what did you think? You just thought they were just attacking a, a religion and, and – you just because it's not like other religions and they're just picking on you? It was much bigger than that. Um, it's, it's almost always the psychs are behind it. So there was a, um, a I was fed a lot of stuff about, um, especially from a child's point of view, there was this sort of unseen group of SP, suppressive people, um, who were likely to also be psychiatrists. <laughs> Oh, who wow. were, you know, actively trying to destroy us because we are the only ones who have the truth. So that would have been what I was fed when I was a kid. Um, I'm sure there's adults that will tell you that today. Yeah. No, I'm sure they do. Um, I mean, we're, we're constantly told, um, especially in the Sea Org, you know, you're cut off from the outside world. So anything bad that happens... Um, it's because someone's trying to take us down. 
Right. Wow. Okay. So you did you did exactly what your mother suggested, right? You got yourself a job helping out um, uh, one of the locations, right? Yeah, it didn't exactly happen the way she thought. You know, she had sold it to me. Um, right. At that at that time, there weren't a lot of children at the ranch yet. Um, it was fairly new and still being um, built up. So there were there actually weren't even enough physical buildings or spaces to house the children in. And the system was that the younger children were kept at the um, ATA, the Apollo Training Academy, which is a small building at Pack Base. Um, and they were to be, you know, pushed up and graduated from the ATA to the ranch where they would be cadets. So the, the ranch was only for children who were old enough and had demonstrated um, being ready to be a cadet. That's weird because I've heard kids say they were sent, or adults who were kids say they were sent there because they were bad kids. Wow. Interesting. I, I think um, different people got different expectations. Well, I mean, there were probably different stages of what the ranch was used for. Um, right. So the time I'm speaking of was um, 1994 to 96. And later on, when the ATA was completely closed and any children that were left were at the ranch, there were probably, um, and even before the ATA was closed, I don't know because I wasn't there when it was closed, but there absolutely could have been a situation where they had a kid's RPF or something like that at the ranch. There was a constant problem with kids at the ATA who were, especially the older ones, who were not on board and were not cooperating. What do we do with them? Because they were jumping the fence and taking off and refusing to go on course and refusing to listen to the adults. And there were... um, and that was this thing that was constantly happening. So I could totally see a situation where some kind of kids RPF or group was created at the ranch to get them out of pack because the ATA was in full view of public Scientologists, hmm. and um, it wasn't it wasn't good PR <laughs> to see all those right. kids um, crammed into that small space or climbing the fence and being yelled at and stuff like that. Um, but at that time, when I got there in '94, that's what the system was. And so they made it for the kids, like, just to keep them in line. Like, you got to behave, you got to do as you're told and toe the line if you want to get to the ranch. Because most of the kids wanted to get to the ranch. They wanted to get out of that tiny space and go up there and have the space, you know, see the horses, whatever. Um, Of course, the reality wasn't what they were going to expect when they got there. But um, anyway, yeah, back to my story. So <laughs> I arrived, sorry, so right. I arrived and um, found out what the real situation was between the ATA and the ranch. My kids were between the age of um, 6 and 10 at that time. So first of all, um, I was treated as though no one knew I was coming, and I had just sold everything I owned and packed up a car with four children and shown up on the doorstep. And I'm, now I'm being told, we didn't know you were coming and we're not sure we want you. You're a liability. You're one what? adult who can work <laughs> for, the, for, for the support of five because they've got to you know, pay for the food and all that for these four kids. 
Um, so then I was in a situation where I was just desperate to prove that I was absolutely worth it. You know, I had to sell myself that I had these skills and that I was completely worth um, being taken on with my children. And, of course, my older children would be, become cadets you know, very quickly because they're right at that age, and so that's how that went. Um, so from that point, all four of my kids and me were at the ATA, um, and I worked there taking care of the food. Um, I thought I would be a full-time medical officer. It's called the MLO, Medical Liaison Officer. Yeah, why but, wouldn't you be? Um, um, I would say there at that time there were about 100 children, and at best, five adults. Um, so it would be a luxury for me to be a full-time medical officer. Like I, I was needed to do the food. Um, okay. So, and I didn't mind that very much because my brain is still in mom mode. Like, I'm still there not just to take care of my kids, but all these other kids. So I could totally blend that purpose of the medical help with nutrition and making sure these kids are getting fed well and that kind of thing. So I, I was fine with it. Um, and I also had a dorm of boys that I took care of in the evening. So I had the three meals a day to bring to the ATA um, and you know, pack up and take away. So basically you had um, courts run six spaces of tables and chairs that were converted into a dining room for each of the three meals. And then they had to be cleaned up and switched back into classrooms after each meal. And so that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I would do that during the day, and then I would get back to um, the dorm and have my dorm of boys that I was responsible for um, getting them through showers, brushing teeth, and getting to bed. Okay, so yep. you, you've described yourself as being in a mom mode, and I believe you when you say that you had a different approach than what we hear about how other kids are taken care of at different locations, cadet orgs and ranches and whatever. Um, do, was Were the other four adults along with you, were they in the same kind of mindset as you? Or were they just there because they had to be there and nowhere else to be? What what was the what was the conditions <clears throat> care wise for these children that you yourself weren't looking after? That question makes it any was sense. very yeah it does um, it was very different one teacher to the next. Um, there were maybe two others that were like me where there was affection and hugs and praise and positive reinforcement and that kind of thing. Um, and then there were one or two others that felt like all of that was um, <clears throat> inappropriate and um, unnecessary and that we were, um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm saying um, because I'm thinking of all these Scientology terms in my head trying to translate. <laughs> gotcha. No, I appreciate um, that. But, um, just had the point of view that like doing those sorts of things was reinforcing this false idea that these were children and that they're not children, they're future SEERG members. Mm. And they don't need hugs and they don't need sympathy or, you know, that sort of, you know, so that I would get 
written up. I would have KRs written up, knowledge reports written on me. You get in trouble um, for caring. I would get in trouble, yeah, for for being too mom like, and um, and then unfortunately, some of the boys in my dorm started calling me mom. Oh. And um, and then that really that really sealed the deal to have a handful of these boys call me mom. And I would try to discourage them, like, I'm getting in trouble, you know, like, just, you know, call me sir, you know, call me Mr. Blue. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. All right. Wow. That's what they were supposed Military, to call Military, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Blue. Um, so, um, <laughs> so I kind of, you know, I, just, I wanted, how do I put this? Um, I didn't stop, but I tried to keep it more on the down low. And especially when those certain people were around, and um, and unfortunately that rivalry, that that situation with these other two teachers started to reflect on my how my kids were being treated. Um, because the same the same one or two teachers that frowned on affection and children being treated like children would also be the ones that played a lot of games with the kids with, as far as favoritism goes. Um, they would tend they would tend to pick out kids that um, they didn't like and just would not let up on them. They would just you know, they would bully them basically, and um, they considered that to be an ethics gradient. And they would encourage other kids to bully them as well. And it was yeah, it was gross. Um, Okay, so that's part one for now. Um, part two is in two weeks. Again, I'm celebrating what's July next week with my family. I will be around uh, to do part two next week. But in two weeks, part two with Danny Ballou. Um I, I really like Danny. Uh, one thing about her story that I find interesting is she tells the story of an old friend who uh, who was coerced into abortion to stay in the Sea Org. You're going to hear more about her time at the ATA at the Apollo Training Academy, and you're going to hear about how abortion came up in a different way because as, as many things in Scientology, there's contradictions, there's double standards. You're going to see that play out as well as a few other topics that have come up, like how she got out, how she got her kids out. Um, escaping comes up again, as it always does, uh, blowing. So uh, all that coming up and more. Uh, I know I was just watching, uh, I was just looking during the playing of the stream here of the interview, I was reading an exchange between Stacy Francis, whoever that is, and, and Leah Remini. And, uh, and, and Stacey's pretty combative, but I just want to remind you guys, just, just one more time, I'll remind you, I've said it before, I own my main account, Miami6Man on Twitter. That's right, you can follow me on Twitter at Miami6Man. But on that account, I was blocked by Stacy, uh, just asking Hey, maybe you should come on my podcast and tell your side. I'll be respectful. I wasn't saying, "Hey, Stacy, come on my podcast so I can tell you why you're wrong, so I can tell you how horrible Scientology is." I was saying, "Come on my podcast. Don't see Scientologists telling your side anywhere. Come tell your side." And I got blocked for that. So uh, that's what winning and and being right looks like, I guess. Um, in the meantime, though, um, for the most part, I want to see everybody have a great week next week. And enjoy your holiday, enjoy the 4th of July, or enjoy whatever you're doing in whatever country you're in doing next week. And in two weeks, we'll see you again. Until then, stay connected. That about sums it up. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, 
and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mum and dad, don't talk to your mum and dad, that's bad. I remember sitting there wishing I could just scream out loud and beg for help. But I knew if I did that, I would never see Mark again. This is the thing about real life. You can't experience the great things without the bad things. I felt like it would probably do better off if we didn't exist. And, um, you know, Pat came up with a plan on, on how to end it. He talks about a seven-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Even, if, if, even if he's referring to actually an adult. So let's say we change that to an adult. There's a woman shudders because the man kisses her even passionately. The fact is that she shudders. You do a big apology to me and give me my kids back. I'm still shocked by the evil. I, 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 yes, even to this day. When I see a video of a former friend or family member, I'm like, this is pure evil at work.